Hey, it's great to see everybody here, especially in this weather. Uh, it was the year 1519, just barely a quarter century after Columbus sailed the ocean blue, when Captain Hernan Cortez led a fleet of Spanish galleons into a harbor just outside of what we now know as Veracruz, Mexico. And his mission was to conquer the Aztec Empire. And after his men debarked uh, from the ships, uh, he noticed that they were very, very fearful. And he had many who had not seen battle before. And so he turned and gave the order, burn the ships. And I've got to admit, I've got some fear and trepidation myself today. Uh, because uh, we're talking about a very sensitive topic, uh, about marriage and divorce and remarriage. And we've got a lot of folks who have been in those categories here today. So just as Mike said a couple of weeks ago about the issue of, div- of, of abortion, and we probably have some people here who've been through that. You know, it's all good in the end. We love you. And I just pray that you'll listen, because what we're going to do today is we're going to spend some time looking at some Scripture, primarily. But you can't talk about this issue without touching or even perhaps stomping on some raw nerves, because it is so painful. Little doubt, little doubt, no doubt in my mind, that all of us have been hurt by divorce at one level or another. But, actually, I've got some good news about marriage. Okay, how many of you have heard and probably stated the statistics that half of all marriages, including a church, end in divorce? Anybody else here? Okay, I mean, I have, I know. And, of course, that is exactly the argument that's used to tear down the institution of marriage. Whether it's for cohabitation, just throw it out. Or it's same-sex marriage. I mean, you guys in the church aren't doing very well. Why should you stop us? Okay? And I just have this dissonance every time I hear or say that about this 50% thing. Because that's not my experience. You know, half of the marriages here, not anything close to half, or in the other churches with whom I'm familiar, end in divorce. But there was a lady, her name is Shanti Feldhahn, And she's a researcher and an author, and she writes books as a Christian about marriage. And so she wanted to use that statistic, except she wanted to back it up with a reference. And so she went out and started to research, and she found lots of references, or or found references to a study that said that 50% of marriages end in divorce. But then when she got back to the source, the person who did that study said, I never said that. Absolutely not. In fact, all of us have been lemmings, simply following somebody's rear end over the cliff. Okay? You see, it's a big lie. Yeah, the the divorce rate is way too high, just like abortion one is too many. It's probably something more like 25 to 30%. But you can take some solace in the fact that it's not nearly as dismal as you thought it was. Today, we want to focus on something more important. You know, I even wore this sweater 
to remind a certain segment here that there's an event coming up in a couple of weeks that you may want to remember. Guys, okay? Uh, I just hope it doesn't make you see red. Okay. Um, If you'll notice in your handout today, there's nothing that I've produced. All that's in your handout is in the lion and lamb statement on marriage and divorce, including the scriptural text. And when you get a chance, read the statement, not now, but we're going to rely heavily upon that handout that has the text upon it. And I want you to read them as we go through. So, Patty, if anybody doesn't have one, go see Patty or somebody over at the, uh, at the, at the entrance to get one, because it's really important that you do this. I want you to be good Bereans. You don't accept what anybody says about Scripture without studying it yourself, and you come to your own conclusions, including whatever I say. You compare it to what Scripture says, and you figure it out for yourself. But what you're going to see in this, in this statement when you read it is like commentators all over the place. The lion and lamb leaders do not agree. You, can you imagine that? We don't agree on something. We do not agree on some of the, the minor issue of the grounds for divorce, but we have decided to move together forward because we agree on the much more important issue of the purpose of divorce, or of marriage, excuse me. And so what I'm going to try to do today is distinguish between what is clear in Scripture and what is open to interpretation, because it may not be clear. And first, I need to make full disclosure. I am not unbiased. Some of you may be, but I know I'm not. I personally and my family have been devastated by divorce. And so I have developed some fairly strong opinions about it. On the other hand, as an attorney... I have heard countless stories of incredible circumstances. I've heard about sinful, evil, wicked, senseless things that people have done within marriage. And I also know that legally, even if you're philosophically or biblically opposed to all, mar- all divorce, or even just in your situation, you don't want to be divorced. If your spouse wants a divorce, if your spouse says you're incompatible, it doesn't make a bit of difference what you think, given our certain legal status in in divorce and marriage. One can break up the whole thing, and you can't do anything about it. That's the reality. So what I'm going to do today is attempt the impossible and fail, I'm sure. That is, be objective. All right? All right. As you may know, I have a little bit of difficulty in treading lightly. So, I ask that you pray with me now for grace in my mouth and in my spirit and in your ears and in your hearts, please, Lord God. We are now going to jump into a very, very difficult subject And I pray, Lord, that all would be looking for your best and that we would consider what is at the heart of this whole issue of the importance of marriage. Father, please guide us today, each and every one of us, and let us consider carefully what you have said. 
and apply it in our own lives. We give you the praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I knew this day would come when we started on going through the Sermon on the Mount, okay? And in our immediately preceding passage, which dealt with purity and adultery, this is just the next logical thing to talk about. Uh, And so, on your sheet, you should have there the passage that we're talking about today, Matthew 5, starting in verse 31, where it says, It was said, this is quoting Jesus, Whoever said sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now the Jews of that day were under the impression that all they need do to get a divorce is give her a writing of a divorce and send her away. Again, this is another in a series of issues in the sermon that in which Jesus confronts the Jewish leaders about their interpretation of God's word and law in order to correct it. Now, while some Jews believe that Moses had only allowed for divorce in certain grievous offenses, most of the Jews, according to the uh, Jewish historian Josephus, interpreted Moses' words as allowing divorce for any reason whatsoever. Uh, looking forward, not much has changed in the last 2,000 years. Like the scribes, Pharisees, and others, there are various interpretations today in the world, but the predominant one is divorce, as regrettable as it may be, is fine for any reason or no reason at all if one wants out. Looking backwards... Uh, to the time of Moses, 1,500 years before Christ. Not much changed, as we will see later on. It was Moses who uh, first addressed this in Deuteronomy 24. But the point I'm trying to make here is regardless of the era, whether it's Moses' time or the time when Jesus was on earth or our time today, mankind has always devolved to the default position of The gift of God, of marriage, can be done away with, wiped off the slate with the decision of one. I suggest to you that's a result of a sin nature. Now, when Jesus was confronted with the words of Moses and the reality of divorce in Matthew 19, amidst all this confusion surrounding this issue, he made one thing perfectly clear. He said, from the beginning, it was not so. So the question we have here for each believer is, what do you do with that fact? How do I respond? How does God's plan for marriage affect my personal attitude and my conviction about marriage. Clear to everybody, this is a really tough issue to resolve. And there is no universal agreement within the church. Christians have debated about what Moses and Jesus meant when they've discussed this issue for ages. So let's go back to the very beginning. That's a very good place to start. Uh, 
In Genesis 2, which is on your sheet, we see there uh, a passage where God forms a woman out of Adam's rib, and Adam sees her as bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. That's significant. Then we hear for the first time a statement that resound throughout the word of God in verse 24, where it says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother, and they shall become one flesh. Now, this one flesh concept is more than just a temporary alliance. It is a unity. The two don't just kind of come together, but they actually become one spiritual being. God makes it clear that this singularity becomes a type, representation, or a picture of something far more significant than a couple of sexual beings. And we're going to get back to that. The beautiful relationship of marriage is a precious gift of God, and Adam and Eve were able to enjoy the pleasures of being one in every sense for a period of time because they were both naked and not ashamed. In Genesis 2.25. But the very next verse, Genesis 3.1, starts with, Then the serpent... And we all know what happens from there. Because sin enters the world. And like a cancer, eats away at God's perfect gift to mankind. Causing mankind to wander from God's plan for unity. Uh, in Deuteronomy 23, kind of skipping here, this is not on your, your, your handout, we read of perversions, prostitutions, prostitutes, both female and male, it, it seems that everything had fallen apart. Marriage had become a sham due to the lust and passion of men. Men would marry, grow tired of their spouses, throw them away for another, perhaps a third. Women had absolutely no protection whatsoever. Now, in Deuteronomy 24, it starts off with this. And I think it's important that you read these words with me. Verse 1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, dot, dot, dot. Okay, the word is used, indecency. I got news for you. That was not adultery because adultery ended the marriage because the remedy was the death penalty. The word Moses uses, therefore, indecency is used one other time in the Old Testament when it refers to human defecation. So to be honest, I'm not sure what he meant there. And he may have been just saying, whatever you guys think it is. I don't know. Some, have, some call what Moses said in Deuteronomy 24 as granting the right of divorce. But I think clearly from the context here that marriage had already become commonplace. He does not say you may. He says when it happens. It is quite possible that Moses was simply recognizing that God's plan had been totally corrupted. Now, some argue that this situation was 
was just totally chaotic, and Moses was simply trying to regulate and control the mistreatment of women about the casual and temporary nature of marriage, in which all the benefits fell to the guy. Uh, Now, with a certificate of divorce, presumably a woman had a right to remarry. And so Moses was warning that if a man, after divorcing his wife, realized that he was better off on the other side of the fence with his first wife, but yet she had married and perhaps divorced and or was widowed, he could not go back to her. Got news for you folks, that is the only command in Deuteronomy 24. That's the only command that Moses gives. He never commands anyone to divorce. We do know that the prophet Malachi closes out the Old Testament with a subtle reminder of God's view of divorce. When the people ask why their offerings are not acceptable to the Lord in Malachi 2, he says, because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, but no one who has done so has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly seed with, or offspring with the wife of his youth? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. Now why would God hate divorce? We remember from Mike's teachings a while back that God does hate certain things. And remember what his plan was, that they are to be one flesh. Now, I've got one probably imperfect analogy that the guys will understand here. Okay, So if you take a couple of pieces of plywood, and they're not strong enough, so you want to make a stronger piece, and you put liquid nails on, on them, and you put them together, and you clamp them, and you let them dry, you basically got one stronger piece of plywood. But then, for some crazy reason, you decide you want to undo that. What's going to happen, guys, when you try to take those two apart? You are going to take pieces out of each other piece, and it's not going to look anything like what it did when you started. When God said that we, when we marry, are one flesh, he really meant it. And you cannot tear apart one flesh without serious damage. Whatever Moses meant when he said she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency, whatever that meant to the Jews of that time uh, when, when Moses said that, whatever regulation or limitation he may have established, it was long forgotten and ignored by the time that Jesus was presented with this problem. So back to our passage here. When we look at Matthew 5, it's always good to interpret Scripture with Scripture uh, and to take it in the context, especially when you're dealing with a difficult passage. So let's, like most people, let's go to Matthew 19, where it starts there in verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Uh, In what were the Pharisees interested Weren't they just looking for the the escape hatch? They were obsessed with the grounds for divorce. Well, how did Jesus answer them? Verse 4, he answered and said, 
Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Did you notice something? Did he answer their question? No, he didn't let them frame the issue. He took them back to the beginning. First to Genesis 1 when they were created male and female. So he's saying very clearly here that marriage is intended for one man and one woman, regardless of how that was adulterated later on. Then to Genesis 2, where marriage is instituted. Man leaves his parents and cleaves and is joined to his wife. They become one flesh. This tells us that God's plan is for marriage to be permanent for life. Marriage is a relationship by which God makes two people permanently one who publicly leave their parents for the purpose of forming that new unity. This is how the generations of life flow from one to the next within God's perfect plan. It's a beautiful thing. But the Pharisees weren't satisfied. Uh, They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. And here the Pharisees reveal their bias. They heard what they wished to hear. There's no misunderstanding here. This is a deliberate misquote of Moses. He gave no such command or encouragement to give a certificate or to divorce. The only command that Moses gave in Deuteronomy 24 was the prohibition of remarriage of one's first wife after she had been married. That's it. The focus of the Pharisees was to keep it simple. Just give her a certificate of divorce and be done with it. How does Jesus respond to their imaginative interpretation? Verse 8, he said to them, Because, and only because, of the hardness of your hearts, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. In this response, this is a clear rebuke. They looked, the Pharisees looked at divorce as a right to be exercised at will. Jesus looked at it as a departure from God's will from the beginning permitted only because of the hardness of their hearts, which had caused a literal flouting of God's will. So what's the application for us? Well, you can draw your own conclusions here. I personally have included that this pharisaical ground is not a place for me to camp out if I want to be faithful. So back to the text. If we take Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 together, kind of paraphrase here, It basically says this, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery and makes his wife commit adultery when she remarries. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery except for the reason of unchastity. Now, among people who study the Bible and talk about it, the term exception clause is universally understood to refer to these two passages in Matthew. And this is where most of the heat is in this debate. The problem is twofold. First, there's a minor point of what does Jesus mean by unchastity, sometimes interpreted immorality or sexual immorality, or King James uses fornication. The Greek word porneus there uh, includes all those things, 
but is interpreted by most conservative folks and lion and lamb leaders as a possible interpretation and no other as adultery. However, the main problem with this passage is that it is requoted or said in two other passages in the Synoptic Gospels, Mark and Luke. And there in Mark 10, we appear to have the same situation that we have in, in Matthew 19, and there Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her, and if she herself divorces her husband, marries another man, she is committing adultery, period. In Luke 16, Jesus says, states to the Pharisees again, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. He who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. No exception clause in those two passages. Now, some suggest that somebody got it wrong here, that some scribe in, in writing this down either had a, a textual omission, leaving the exception clause out, or a textual insertion, putting it in, in the Matthew text. Okay? Now, I just ask you, hypothetically here, knowing what you know about the propensity of man and where he's going, which one is more likely? Okay, kind of irrelevant. I don't think, I don't buy either one of those arguments. I personally believe that the texts are consistent, yet intentionally different because the authors were speaking to two different groups. I'm not going to go into that now because some of the other leaders may disagree, but if you want to know, I'd be happy to talk to you about it. However, the Lion and Lamb leaders determined that even though we have differing views on this particular issue, it was admitted by both sides, if you will, that neither side knew for sure that their interpretation was correct. Uh, this is just one of those areas where we have to understand there are going to be different interpretations. We have to read the text for ourselves, be good Bereans, and come to your own conclusion and apply it to yourself, okay? Don't try to impose it on somebody else. We as a church have to take a position. We've drawn a line. But we have to remember tolerance in this area where there is some confusion. I think that tolerance is borne out in the conclusion of the passage in Matthew 19. Because whatever Jesus meant by the, using the exception clause there, his disciples thought it was pretty restrictive. In verse 10 in Matthew 19, the disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry at all. Yeah, it seems like what they were hearing from Jesus was not something they were very comfortable with, uh, according to their interpretation of what he was saying. Uh, but he said to them, verse 11, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it is given. Now, when Jesus said that, that last statement, I think he meant something. Again, I could be wrong here, but I believe that by laying out a choice for the disciples, he was laying out a choice for us as disciples as well. Each of us, if we find ourselves in a difficult marital situation, perhaps involving adultery or abandonment or whatever, we must choose a course that we will follow. Whether you believe there's an exception clause or not, or how far the exception clause goes, you should follow that conviction. Follow that conviction. And we see this in the conclusion of the Matthew 19 discussion, starting in verse 12. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. 
And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who are made eunuchs themselves for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Now, I know you've read that before. Did you ever wonder how we got into a discussion about eunuchs at this point? If I understand correctly, a eunuch was generally a male who could not have sexual relations either because of something he was born with or without, or if somebody who was castrated, you know, not, neither of which are voluntary things. But Jesus makes clear here that somebody can be a eunuch by choice. I believe what he's saying there is referring to celibacy for the kingdom of God. And I think what Jesus is saying here in context is that if there is a divorce, some may choose to remain unmarried, celibate, if they accept whatever he meant as their own conviction. That's why he ends with a statement, he is able to accept this, let him accept this. Now let me see, I'm just giving you my interpretation here, not speaking for the other teachers. I'm not sure how they feel about that particular point. And as you'll see in your handout, if you read the statement, you'll see that in addition to adultery as a possible justification for divorce, some, some leaders believe that abandonment may also be a, a justification. And for that, we have to look at 1 Corinthians 7, which is on your handout as well. And again, this is one of those passages that's subject to different interpretations. This passage starts with a pretty clear instruction to spouses who are both believers. And starting in verse 10, it says... To the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. We're going to get a little in the weeds here, so stay with me. What does Paul mean by leave? It seems to me that in these two verses here, leave actually means divorce. Uh, If it does mean divorce, then Paul's saying that, first of all, you should not divorce, but if she does, she is to remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And then Paul adds on, and the husband should not divorce his wife. I think it's doubtful that Paul was saying that the wife may divorce, but the husband may not. But rather, I view Paul as saying that believing spouses should not divorce, period. But if they do, it's hard to escape the conclusion that either is free to remarry. Paul makes this clear with these instructions are from, quote, the Lord, unquote. Now, I know this sounds like the death penalty for some. Speaking of which, I went to a funeral this past week. But I'll get back to that. Paul had a definite preference for singleness. Uh, and this, this, this is not in your handout because we go to the passage just in front of uh, what we've been studying in Matthew, or uh, 1 Corinthians 7, at verse 7, where it says, I, Yet I wish that all men were even as I am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows, that it is good for them if they remain even as I am. In other words, single. And then in verse 32 of First Corinthians 7, I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. 
but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Now, all this I say to bring out the point that singleness or celibacy is not the death penalty. It's not the end of the world. It could very well be God's plan for advancing his kingdom through the life of a never-married person or a widow or even a divorced person. Case in point, the funeral that I went to was for a lady named Sandy Balaka. A lot of you may not know Sandy, but Sandy was never married, but she had many children, spiritually. She, you see, she, at a young age, she threw herself into the child evangelism fellowship, both here and abroad. And then she has served uh, at Topeka Bible Church for over 20 years in the children's ministry there. And we heard story after story about how the Spirit used Sandy to bring little ones to Christ. Sandy clearly used her time, her energies, her life to please the Lord rather than a husband. Now, the world's concept of singleness is that it's just kind of a way to keep our options flexible or really to sleep around. I suggest to you that for believers, singleness should be used to store up treasures in heaven. My strong suspicion is that Sandy Balaka is going to have far more rewards in heaven than I will. Now, back to the text here. I say that uh, verses 10 and 11 applies to believing spouses because Paul next deals with a different situation. And his instruction here is for mixed marriages in, in in reference to a believer with an unbeliever. Starting in verse 12, he says, But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, and that's where we get the abandonment issue, let him leave, the brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. Now, Paul admits here again, he's not speaking for the Lord now. He's giving his own instruction, uh, interpreting God's word here as he can. Uh, Perhaps much as Moses did when he was facing an emergency situation. Here. It appears that mixed marriages, believers and unbelievers, was common, resulting in, as you can imagine, a lot of conflict, which meant that somebody might just get frustrated, get up and leave. But to be consistent with verses 10 and 11, this leaving, in my mind, could mean divorce without saying so. Notice it's the unbeliever who leaves. So I want to make an important distinction here. Do Paul's words mean that a Christian in an abusive marriage must stick it out in that household. Well, 
I think there's a clear difference between separation and divorce. It might be to protect yourself or the children. It might be a serious problem to get the attention of the husband, to make him get right with God, or the wife for that matter. Um, Or there might be some very important reasons. But separation, while not ideal, may very well be necessary in certain situations. But divorce, on the other hand, is never commanded or commended. In fact, Paul takes great pains to steer even those married to unbelievers away from divorce. If an undivorced or if an unbeliever does not leave or divorce the believer, Paul says the believer must not divorce the unbeliever. But if the unbeliever does leave, Paul says that the believer is not under bondage in some cases. In such cases, excuse me. And again, the meaning here is not clear, at least to me. If Paul means leave by leave divorce, as he seems to in verses 10 and 11, then not under bondage would appear to mean that remarriage is authorized, unlike divorce from a believer. But if, if leave here means abandonment without divorce, and it may, then not under bondage could mean a number of things. It could mean that divorce, uh, after divorce, remarriage, or it could mean simply allowed to divorce, not under bondage, or it could mean divorce and remarry, or it could mean that one is not required to chase after and stay with, in the same household with the unbeliever who is trying to get away, yet remain married. Now, again, I have to admit, it may be clear to you, but it's not to me. Okay, now that we've looked at all these passages related to divorce, however you view the meaning of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels, I'm going to encourage you to forget it. Not that you should ever ignore Scripture, and a few of you may have to apply this in your life sometimes, but what I mean is forget about divorce for your life. If you're focusing on the divorce... You're looking in all the wrong places. You're going in the wrong direction. Whatever you think about the meaning of chastity or unchastity in Matthew or Paul's teachings, I urge you to do what Paul and Jesus did. That is, focus on the importance of divorce. Before using this not under bondage language, Paul talks about sanctifying your spouse and keeping your children holy. That's fairly important. And then after that very language, he says, but God has called us to peace. You may have grounds, but don't look that way. Turn back because marriage is important, if at all possible. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? There might be something more important than your personal happiness. Paul then concludes this whole chapter on marriage and divorce or leaving and singleness with the statement... In verse 39, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives. Jesus likewise treated the question of divorce and the misinterpretation of the Pharisees with total disdain. Why is marriage important? Well, for one, it's the bedrock 
of our society. Imagine a world without marriage. People would be in an endless cycle of passion and lust and then hurt and bitterness over and over again. Children would have little, if any, security. But even more important than that hurt and bitterness and harm to children, Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 why marriage is important. Read with me there, starting in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. How so? Because they are one flesh. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ in the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. How important is marriage? That's the great divorce question. This deep and mysterious mysterious passage tells us that the purpose of marriage is to reflect the very glory of God. The relationship between Christ and and his bride, the church. I've got a serious question for everybody here. Serious question. Will Christ ever divorce his bride? Now, it may be easier for me to take the conviction that I have for myself uh, because... As I said, I was personally devastated by divorce in my family. Um, Christy didn't have that experience. You know, uh, she had faithful parents throughout. Uh, And I want you to understand that Christy and I do not have a perfect marriage. We do have disagreements. Uh, At least one of us is hard-headed. You're looking at. But she's very, very patient with me, and she makes it easy for me to hold to this conviction. But because of my past, because of the legacy that I had, I had to build a hedge into my life. And I have said it before, and I want to say it again, because some of you people are not, have not been here before. If I am ever stupid or wicked enough to leave my wife, I want you to hold me as nothing in your eyes. And I mean that. It's that important to me. If you are divorced now... You might read these passages anew and conclude that God maybe does take divorce and remarriage or the whole thing more seriously than you once thought. However, for you, what's done is done. There's been a remarriage, that's it. Thankfully, you and I have a forgiving God. Confession 
and repentance and forgiveness are just as much options for divorcees as for me and all other sinners. And so that you will understand how we apply this here, uh, in your statement there you will read that the leaders of Lion and Lamb have concluded that we, as a group of sinners, have extended this grace to one another. So the contrary to what some believe about leadership, we have had men and we now have men who have been divorced or who are married to divorced ladies, but yet show the leadership qualities that are found in Scripture. It's not that it's not an issue. When divorce has been there in the past, we inquire about it. We look into it. We want to know, did you do everything you could to make things right? And how have things changed now? And what are you now? Are you truly the husband of one wife? That's the inquiry in some that we go through. Whatever your conviction on the marriage passages, I just urge you to focus on commitment. Don't look for a way of escape. An escape hatch always makes it easier to try to escape. Therefore, please, burn the ships. To the unmarried, uh, if God's plan for you is not celibacy, before you marry, I encourage you to get serious about God and make sure your intended is serious as well. Prepare for marriage. Make sure there's none of those irreconcilable differences that the two of you aren't willing to work out now, ahead of time. A little caution here. Several, from experience, several of my children have made the mistake of thinking that they had found the one. But then God told them before they got married that it wasn't the one, for which we are all very grateful. Uh, because the one that you married becomes the one. Think about that. Have an honest discussion when you're thinking about marriage. One of you needs to say, when I say yes at the altar, I mean for life. Is that what you mean? Get a commitment. Because you will, at the altar, make a public vow before God. And I think that God takes vows pretty seriously. For the marriage, the married folks here, uh, during the inevitable arguments, don't you ever use or think the D word. Instead, if you have problems that you can't resolve between yourself, get some help, please. Get some counseling. Get a marriage mentor. Work through the problems with a full commitment to marriage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and never leave her. Wives, honor and respect your husband just as if he was Christ in the flesh, even though you know fully well he's not perfect. Please do not follow the Pharisees in focusing on ways to get out. Instead, focus on what God Emphasize through Paul and through Jesus particularly. Prepare, be and stay one flesh.
for life, whatever it takes. Lord God, we give you all praise and we thank you for the tremendous gift of marriage. We thank you for the gift of singleness as well. Father, that you have called each one of us to a different course. But we pray, Lord, that whatever your will for individuals here, that you would use us to be a shining light, to be a clear representation of the most important thing involved here, which is the glory of Christ, Christ and his bride, the church. Father, help us never to forget that. Father, help us to apply these things in our lives in a practical way and be a beacon to others and encourage others to work and do what's necessary to keep marriage strong. We give you all praise and all glory. In Jesus' name, amen.